welcome back to Down to Earth Cornell Conversations About. This is Dr. Danielle Eisman, visiting lecturer in the Department of Communication at Cornell University. I am back after spending a few weeks in Chicago with my family, um, and in this episode we cover the public understanding of science. The public understanding of science emerged as a research field in the 1980s. Brossard and Lewinstein characterized work related to the public understanding of science by two broad categories. The first describes projects that aim to improve what the public understands about a specific area of science. The second category refers to the exploration of the interaction between the public and science. And this builds upon the way that the way that cognitive science examines the way that we process information. So research suggests that we have two cognitive processes for interpreting information. Researchers have called them by different names, such as system one and system two, or fast and slow thinking, or the heuristic and systematic systems. And some information is analyzed and stored in our short-term memory, and some is stored in our long-term memory. And there are a number of factors that can determine how each individual processes information and which system that information is processed in. This includes our experiences, existing knowledge, attitudes, culture, daily practices, and so on. Um, so there's a lot of different things that can influence um, the way that we interpret and process information, whether it goes to the system one or system two, and it, it depends. Um, you know, on, on a specific point in time and, you know, what the environment is, what a person is going through in that exact moment, perhaps their emotional states, as well as those other factors that I mentioned previously. And so it's why that, you know, if you're in a room full of people and you say one particular thing, they will all interpret the message in very different ways. And so when it comes to describing information processing with science, we can refer to a term called science curiosity, which was developed by Dan Cahan and colleagues. Science curiosity describes a general disposition or enduring trait, such as an attitude, that varies across individuals and represents a person's drive to consume scientific information for pleasure. So we have different levels of science curiosity among the public. Um, which may impact how they interpret science information or how, or how willing they are to receive new scientific information. And sometimes this is influenced by their, um, you know, political leaning, which we've seen that um, the way that science is interpreted these days, especially with everything that's happening right now, is that sometimes our political leanings get in the way of accepting or receiving new scientific information. And so science and, and people's understanding of science has become a somewhat political process. Most people's formal science education ends once they complete high school. However, research tells us that individuals' knowledge and understanding of scientific facts is strongly associated with their level of education. So roughly 35% of Americans over the age of 25 have a bachelor's degree. And so if you think about how many people out there really have the level of education associated with understanding scientific information, you know, they're 
their experience ended after high school and depending on how long ago that was they may not recall the different ways of how to be skeptical or ask questions about new or novel or surprising scientific information um, and if they're not that high up in in terms of their level of science curiosity they may not uh, take the initiative to investigate new information. They may just accept it um, from whatever source is providing that information. And it's not to say that only people with a formal education are able to assess scientific information, but given that very little time throughout a person's life in school is devoted to foundational understandings of science and scientific processes, there's room for errors or, or misconceptions or um, you know, an over-reliance on media sources for scientific information. And, you know, another big problem that contributes to that is the internet. So the, although the internet has provided us with access to a great deal of information, which is incredible, there's also the possibility of encountering misinformation or pseudoscience. And where this becomes an issue is that because there's so much information available to us quite easily, we are less and less reliant on our ability to learn, store, and retrieve scientific facts from our earlier education. And this means that people are less likely to evaluate and interpret scientific information presented to them through the lens of their foundational understanding of science. They're just willing to accept information that is given to them passively. And according to research, most people in the United States say that they enjoy keeping up with scientific news, but when asked about new topics in science, they're less familiar with um, new types of research or new types of scientific processes such as hydraulic fracking, gene editing, synthetic flood, nanotechnology, agricultural biotechnology, and genetically modified foods, stem cell research, and geoengineering, just to name a few. Granted, on surveys or interviews, people often try to give researchers the answers they're looking for or aggrandize their behavior to appear more intelligent, nicer, wealthier, etc. So even on these surveys that are supposed to be a nationally represented sample, which may only be about 1,200 to 1,400 people, people will overstate their behaviors. So they'll say that they do keep up with science when they actually don't. Another challenge to promoting the public understanding of science is the way media outlets portray the scientific process. Media outlets have been reporting on the question of whether or not science is self-correcting, which in most cases it is set up to be self-correcting. Articles are reviewed by peers, studies are replicated, and data are examined by multiple peers. But many times when a scientist has to make a retraction, the media can frame it in several different ways. For example, the article, there was an article in The Economist entitled Trouble in the Lab, which presents issues in the scientific process where data is presented incorrectly. The headline, though, is misleading because the article actually discusses the process in which scientific studies are corrected, as opposed to the, as the, the title suggests, that there's a problem in the way that scientific research, research is conducted. And so this and, and many other news outlets started to 
craft a narrative which questions the motives and actions of scientists. Although these events are quite rare and are indicative of individual actions, the media is able to create a vivid and memorable story that engenders trust in institutions that seek to provide and share knowledge. These narratives become so vivid that people then rely on what is called the availability heuristic, which refers to people's tendency to infer the frequency of some event by judging how quickly examples of that event come to mind. And people will overgeneralize the likelihood that retractions occur based on how well they remember these events, especially when media coverage is ongoing. Uh, a prime example of that is uh, what they call climate gate. So it was several emails that were leaked between um, scientists at East Anglia University, and they were discussing the different ways to present data within a paper, and it was interpreted as um, falsifying data, when in reality it was just discussing which data should be included and which should not. Um, and at the time, climate skeptics used that as a way to show that the climate science is unsettled and that people are making up data, which there's so much data out there that it's impossible to make up data that climate change is happening. Um, and then, you know, there's other examples of this. Um, so, you know, especially when celebrities or, or people with large platforms start to develop a narrative around science that leads to misinformation. So Rush Limbaugh provides a really great example of this. In 2015, he told his 14.5 million listeners the following. What you can assume here, safely so, is that the vast majority of what you hear, if you hear, from the journal Science, from the journal Psychology Today, it's all bogus. So much of it is just bogus and totally made up, and the purpose is to affect human behavior. And the reason it's fascinating to me is because I think it's all across the board of science. So here, Rush Limbaugh paints this picture to a rather significant listening audience um, that you cannot trust what you hear from scientific journals. And that's where most research is, is published or put out into the world. So you have all these people working on, on studies and then it gets published. And then you have someone telling 14 and a half million people that you can't trust it and that it's all made up. Um, and scientists don't have that large of a platform you know, um, you know, we're not, we're not famous. We don't um, talk to large groups of people, um, except maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson. I think he has a rather large audience and Bill Nye, the, the science guy. But as far as other scientists having that large of a platform, um, they really don't. Um, another example is Joe Rogan, who has had a few instances where he has presented some ina inaccurate information to his large audience, but he, he acknowledges that his podcast is not intended to be a source of accurate information. But now that he has reached a, a certain level of influence, some argue that he should be a little bit more careful in what he tells people, especially when discussing critical topics such as vaccinations for COVID-19, which poses a large risk to public health. You know, if, if you have someone with a huge audience and they're saying that 
young people don't need to get vaccinations. That's, um, you know, that, that puts the, the public at risk, especially if they do see Joe Rogan as a source of accurate information, even though he may not see himself that way. So it's a, it's an interesting, um, line to, to navigate or, you know, um, to balance. So now Brianna, Daniel, Cameron, and I will discuss how well the public understands science. I guess that can kind of lead us into the next topic of does the public understand? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's, that's my input. No, they do not. That should be like the intro sound. <laughs> I'm keeping that in. Uh, yeah. Or like those buttons that people press, or it's like yes or no. To go, no. <laughs> we should we should harmonize. We should all go no. Yeah, for the intro. <laughs> I know I can't sing. It's okay. You'll blend. <laughs> we can do or something. <laughs> Um, <laughs> to, to touch on what you were saying too, Danielle, it goes the other way. You said people look for information to show their own bias, mm-hmm. you know, for things. As far as the audience, people look for scientific articles that support what they already or want to believe, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So whether it's true or not. So, I mean, they don't, people don't care about understanding. They just want to be right. <laughs> <laughs> and so if they can find that article that makes them look right, then that's what they're going to tell as, as truth. Like, I hate it when people, this, my mom does this all the time. I'm trying to get her to stop it. She'll, she'll try to say something to me. And she always goes, well, you know, I heard, or some people say, or people say this. And I'm like, well, who, who are these people? You know what I mean? They don't, but it's like something they find off the internet or whatnot. They tout it as fact. And it's just these anonymous people where you have like scientists that actually know what they're talking about. And they're like, you know, no, do your research type of thing. It, it drives me insane. It's you feel like a crazy person. Yeah, they they say. They say, well, some people say, who? <laughs> who? <laughs> one. That's how most people argue. Even I'm all that I'm probably guilty of that a lot of the time. And I don't even realize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so bad at arguing, especially with my family, because they just like machine gun information at me about a wide variety of topics and then and then it, it shifts really quickly and I like I mean I focus on a very small area of knowledge and so I just don't I can't I can't spout out information about a variety of topics I just I don't I don't spend my time like that um, <laughs> so I'm just like okay <laughs> I'm not good at debating. <laughs> no, I'm not either. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, you know, the, I guess, oh, and, and maybe this is another hot topic, um, but, you know, a lot of internet companies, you know, like Google and Facebook and, and Twitter, they're, they're taking a lot of action to try and reduce the instance of of, of that, of, you know, they say, or, or that misinformation that gets shared a lot on, on social media. But then a lot of people are arguing that that is limiting free speech. 
And so, <laughs> so, so what do you do? I mean, <clears throat> you know, if you're trying to, I mean, if we were to do like a, a, a thought experiment um, and say that the, you know, the, the purpose of a government is to ensure the welfare of its society or its citizens, should it enforce policies that protect the public from misinformation? Or is that overstepping the democratic process? I mean, if it's gonna save lives, I mean, it's weird that it even gets down to this in the first place. <laughs> I mean, like scientists, you guys have been like weaponized now. You know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, man. Yeah, like I know um, on TikTok even, like during the pandemic when it was like really heightened, like they would have like under a video, if it mentioned anything with like COVID, they would have like a little like disclaimer saying like, make sure that you check with the CDC or something like that um, before like, um, believing anything that you hear about COVID, which I think was like good. So it allowed people to, you know, like say what they want to say, whether it's right or wrong, but then also like telling them this might not be correct. Mm -hmm. I guess that's like the the best way to do it. Um, yeah. That's a, that's another thing too, though. You I mean, you talk about the CDC and then other people are like, the CDC will say something and then half the population goes, I don't know, because some people say, <laughs> like the cdc comes up with this the world health organization might say something then people are still like i don't i don't know i don't know if i'm gonna trust the cdc because yeah. this anonymous person on, on youtube you know said mass cause of cancer or something yeah yeah people just hate being corrected even if it's from a trusted expert like you said like people they just they just want to be right. They don't really care like who says what. Yeah. So, so I guess the another question, guys, is as far as science, do you just keep giving information out to the people that are going to accept it and want it, or are you actually trying to get this other side? Like, you know, I don't know if I'm asking that question right. Like, yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. It it's like when do you just give up and just and just focus on the people that, that you know understand or are you actively trying to say no guys i mean they're, they're actually fighting against you know science <laughs> i i don't know i think for me working in climate change communication and public engagement for over a decade i'm i'm ready to give up <laughs> Which is probably not a good thing to say publicly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she didn't mean it. <laughs> um, I think it's it takes a long time. I, you know, and I, I guess I could use my own family as an example. Um, you know, after a decade, my uncle finally agrees that uh, climate change is happening. He doesn't necessarily agree with a lot of the proposed solutions. Um, so there's, so we've seen progress or change in that way. And it's not been through like, a, you know, getting in his face and, and trying to debate him 
over the years. It's just kind of slowly listening and, and broaching the subject in small pieces and, you know, letting him do most of the talking and researching and asking where he got his information and, and things like that. Um, and same thing with my grandma. My grandma has become more and more interested. Um, and now, you know, at 95, she wants to limit or reduce her plastic uh, consumption, you know, things like that. <laughs> no, Grandma. <laughs> um, so, so it's it's things like that, um, you know, that you're like, okay, well, this, you know, maybe this is worth it, or maybe you can create change. But then there's other times where you know you're dealing with larger audiences, where it just feels like an overwhelming problem. And you don't know whether or not you should continue down that path. Um, so I don't know. It's it's maybe part of it as as far as a communication, you know, we're talking about communication, storytelling, or whatnot. Maybe it's just maybe it depends on who's delivering that message. You know, I feel like someone that's pushing back against science is going to take one of their own to you know to convert them, I guess, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Like, cause they, like, they might listen to Ted Nugent. If Ted Nugent was like, yeah, climate change is real, or uh, I can't think of any other right-wing people. That's, that's all I got. But you know what I mean? Take someone that they trust and, you know, if like climate change deniers, if, if there's a big conference and then Rachel Maddow came out to, to tell them about it, they're not gonna believe the word she says. Mm -hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? So they need someone of in the quote their own. To, so I guess that's part of I guess delivery storytelling to or setting the tone. I think that's part of all of that. That's why I like um, that um, that guy on Instagram. I think it's Bo of the Fifth. I don't know if if any of you have seen his videos, but he kind of presents himself as someone that would be right-wing and conservative, but then he breaks down information in a very easy to understand and relatable way. And it's very approachable and engaging. He's a great storyteller. So I, I, I like his, um, his method. And it, it's, it's very much, it has a perception of that. He's trying to talk to people that typically wouldn't be engaged in certain topics or would not necessarily listen to another perspective about certain topics. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Just to like piggyback off of like all of this, um, this actually reminds me of, uh, I actually did like a personal interview with, uh, you mentioned him earlier, but uh, Bruce Monger. And to go all the way back to that question of, do we give science to those who are gonna accept it or do we keep trying to get everyone to understand it? Uh, he actually told me like, uh, you know, you just gotta like do your best to communicate what you know, but you're always gonna have, and he called them like dead enders. Like they're just like impossible to persuade no matter what. But he did like also explain like in general though, like we are still going in the right direction with, you know, making appropriate adjustments to society based on like what science says we should do i mean like especially like younger audiences that are like more accepting 
minds are still like malleable. Like we are, you can, there's it definitely is like still a shift in, you know, just making better, greener choices. So, I mean, I know when you, when you said like, uh, you're almost ready to like give up, like, no, it's, you're definitely, we're definitely still going in the right direction overall. And then also that point on how like people are going to be much more accepting information based on who says it. He also explained one time he was, I don't know, he was talking about like some science research to someone and her response to him was, sorry, I'm just laughing because it's, it's just hard to take what you say seriously because you're a liberal or something like that. <laughs> but, um, uh, there we go. These, uh, this was stuff that he was just telling me once in a, like in an interview with him. And it was just making me think like, well, what would be that person's argument then that if I guess you got a conservative or someone more moderate to say the same things, would that like, then would, would she have been like more accepting to it? So um, probably, or just a, a, a liberal plant or deep state. <laughs> I, I, it's so bizarre because I, you know, if I think about all the different scientific research that I've, I've done throughout my life, I, I've never once, I've never once, um, oh, my brain, uh, <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta remember to stretch. <laughs> no. I know my watch has been yelling at me too. Um, so, no, I, um, my political perspective has never been, and you know, I mean, granted that we have unconscious biases anyway, but I've never been like, well, I'm going to approach this experiment from my liberal perspective. Um, you know, it, it just hasn't, that hasn't come up, you know, um, but then certain topics have become so politicized because of the way it's presented in the media so that now we are perceived as certain political representatives based on the topics that we study. It's interesting. But it's encouraging to hear though, Daniel, that makes me feel a lot better. Because <laughs> I think we lose sight of the fact that we are progressing in the right direction. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how often we actually get to hear the good news in the news. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. A lot of demon gloom. Another thing uh, that's encouraging too is uh, Brianna talking about the um, Aesop's videos. You know, I think that's a new yeah. medium too with TikTok and all these things coming out that uh, a way to reach the younger generations or, or whatnot, you know, because I don't think the younger generations are watching the CNNs and MSNBC or whatnot. You know, they're getting it from other places like these ASOPs and whatnot. And so I, I don't think the older generation has, you know, stuck their hands in it yet and screwed everything up there. So, uh, <laughs> so I think it's, as far as storytelling too, that's another good medium. You know, hopefully that, you know, younger generations paying attention to and, and while we bicker on Facebook. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you again for joining us. You can find us on Twitter at downtoearth underscore pod or on downtoearth.podcast on Instagram. And you can find links to the materials we reference and read along on our blog um, at dearprofessor.org backslash blog. 
Thank you.